This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. The scripture reading for today is Luke chapter 2, verses 40 through 52. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is God's word. Before we dive into the particulars of this text, I want to mention briefly uh, something about biblical interpretation, particularly as it relates to the Gospels. We want our church to be people who can self-feed, self-feed. You know how to read the Bible, you know how to interpret the Bible, and um, you won't make it in the Christian life if you can't self-feed. So we look for opportunities to, to make some comments about biblical interpretation so you can Read the scriptures for yourselves and nourish your own soul through it. So I want to mention a couple of things. First of all, you can think of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as four camera angles on the life of Jesus. Four camera angles on the life of Jesus. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what's called the synoptic gospels. That is, they bear similarities to one another. The Gospel of John, if you want to stay with the imagery, shoots the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus kind of on a 90 degree off angle, off access uh, angle onto his life. It has a lot of unique material that you don't find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So that's one thing to bear in mind as you read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic Gospels. Um, They have lots of similarities, lots of parallels. John is, is a bit unique. And there's numerous reasons for that I won't go into at the moment. Second thing is you have to ask a question when reading the four Gospels. You've got to ask a question, a fundamental question when reading these four Gospels. That is, why did they record this story, event, or teaching? Why did they record it? Now, one of the answers certainly is because it happened. The writers don't make things up. 
You know, the, the very first verses of Luke tell us that Luke carefully investigated the firsthand witnesses, uh, their accounts of the, of the life of Jesus. That's certainly one of the reasons why they recorded it. It happened, but we know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had far more material collected than they included in their gospel accounts. They had far more material collected than they included in their gospel accounts. So what they used, they used not just because it happened, but because it teaches something. So if you sit with a passage in one of the gospels and you don't read it simply thinking to yourself, this happened and that happened, or this verse means this and that verse means that, but rather you ask the question, why is the author telling us this? And maybe a follow-up question to that, why is the author telling us this here at this point in the gospel account? If you learn to ask those questions, I think you'll find your Bible reading to be enriched. And frankly, it was, those two questions were fundamental questions for me as I looked at this text. So let's see what we find in this text. Now this passage is unique. This is the only place in the Bible where you can read about Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. In Luke's gospel, it functions in a unique way, a special way, because it bridges the gap between the infancy narratives and Jesus' adult life and public ministry. And as such, because it's bridging those two, it actually is a foreshadowing text, a foreshadowing passage. It foreshadows what's to come throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke. It functions a bit like a prologue. It sets up what's to come. It anticipates themes found the rest of the way through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And the big idea in this story is simple. Jesus is confusing. It's the big idea. At the end of this scene uh, if, uh, that Paul read for us, at the end of this, we're told Joseph and Mary did not understand what he was saying to them. We're told that. They, they did not understand what Jesus was saying. Now this is a little bit unique because there are other places throughout Luke's gospel where, where Jesus says something or does something that's cryptic and everybody wonders what's going on, but then he explains, right? He explains and everybody responds saying, oh, that's what you mean. Oh, I get it now. <laughs> In this story, there is no explanation, none. Jesus acts in a seemingly indecipherable, unaccountable way. And when you get to the end of the passage, Jesus is confusing. So we're gonna look at three aspects to this today. We're gonna look at Jesus and how he confounds those who know him best, humbly serves those he loves, and is to be trusted and treasured. Jesus confounds those who know him best, humbly serves those he loves, and is to be trusted and treasured first. Jesus confounds those who know him best. So every year, both of Jesus' parents made the roughly 80-mile trip, if they're walking around Samaria, from Nazareth to Jerusalem, 80 miles. Now in that time, only men were required to attend. Women and children were not, but we're given a glimpse into Mary and Joseph's piety 
and the fact they both make the trip. It would likely have been a three to four day journey covering 15 to 20 miles per day and they would have done so in a group of people, a caravan. Now using the caravan as the mode of travel was for safety reasons, but it also explains how it is Jesus could have stayed behind without his parents' knowledge. Okay, keep in mind in those days, the family was more than the nuclear family as we understand that today. Family was a broader category of people. Family would have included aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and more. And children were parented by all adult figures within their family. I say that because I don't want us to harp too harshly on Mary and Joseph for some kind of parental negligence. So when they realize Jesus is absent, they head back to Jerusalem. Now, it says, the text says three days. It's likely one day's journey out, they realize he's not with them, one day's journey back, and one day searching the city to try to find him. So they head back to Jerusalem. They find him in the temple where he was wowing the preeminent Bible scholars of the day. Now, the first one to speak is Mary. And her question to Jesus is one every one of us has asked at some point. Every one of us has asked Mary's question at some point. Jesus, why have you treated us this way? We've all asked the question. We will all ask the question to our dying day. Jesus, why have you treated us like this? The word she uses conveys this idea of deep mental pain and trauma. How could you do this to us, Jesus? Now let's think for a minute. Mary and Joseph, (laughs) they're the two human beings in the world at this time who know Jesus better than anybody else. Think about it, they've been his parents. They spent every day with him for for 12 years. They know the distinct shape of his knuckles, the cowlicks in his hair, the timbre of his voice, his unique idiosyncrasies that make him fully human. They know him inside and out. They've been closer to him than anyone else for 12 years. And yet here we have Jesus absolutely confounding those who know him best. Now, as a side note, there's something to learn here. (laughs) Proximity to Jesus and pious religious observance is no guarantee you've got Jesus figured out. Proximity to Jesus and pious religious observance is no guarantee that you've got Jesus figured out. So after Mary asked this question, why are you treating us like this? Why have you done this to us? Jesus responds with a question. Why were you searching for me? It's actually a rebuke. Jesus is not interested in getting information. It's a gentle rebuke and he follows that up with with a statement. He says, I had to be in my father's house. Literally, it was necessary for me to be doing my father's things. In other words, Jesus says, doing this is part of my mission in the world. It was necessary. It's part of my mission in the world. Me being here is part of the plan. This is how God's program for the world is to unfold. So this was not an impulsive, poorly thought out decision on the part of an attention deficit disorder 12-year-old boy. This was necessary, Jesus says. It's part of the salvation plan. 
Christian, Jesus will do this to you. He will constantly be confounding your expectations for how he should behave and how he should be treating you. He will constantly be doing things that don't seem to fit and saying things that don't make any sense to you. The rest of the Gospel of Luke actually bears this out. This happened time and again. See, we think when we become Christians, you know, I'm gonna give my life to Christ, I'm gonna devote myself to him, I'm gonna obey him, we're gonna walk hand in hand down the yellow brick road together. He's gonna answer my prayers, he's gonna bless me. This is what we think. But you're gonna find that Jesus will constantly do things that don't seem to fit. And he'll say things that don't make any sense to you. He is confusing. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a book called No Graven Image. It's a work of fiction. And uh, it's about a missionary who goes into the rainforest and wants to translate the Bible. At the end of the story, everything falls apart. The, the one man in the tribe who can enable her to do the translation and, and can connect her to this tribe, she accidentally kills him and she's expelled from the region. And at the end of the book, everything falls apart. Uh, Elizabeth once talked about that book and the response it generated. She said numerous people wrote angry letters to her saying, God would never treat a faithful person like that. God would never let those sorts of things happen. In fact, she was even informed by the president of a seminary that he had purposely kept the book off the best books of the year shelves to make sure fewer people read it. But here's what she said about it. She said, the irony is the book was based pretty much on what really happened. <laughs> Many of you know her story. She and her husband Jim, along with four of the missionary couples, went into the rainforest to translate the Bible to reach the lost tribes. The night before they went in to make contact with the tribe, they even sang a hymn that talks about God being our shield and defender. And the next day, Elizabeth's husband, Jim, and the other four men were speared to death. They left behind wives. They left behind children. There was no sense to it. Why did God let that happen? And as Elizabeth was processing people's response to her book, the fact that it really is based on true events, she said something absolutely profound. I'm gonna read it twice. Here's what she said. I dethrone him if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my ideas. God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will, and that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. I dethrone him 
if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my ideas. God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. Jesus is confusing. He's confusing even to those who know him best. He's confusing even to those who love him. Even if things are going well right now for you, it won't be long before you, like Mary, look at Jesus and say, how can you treat me like this? I love you. I've given my life to you. How can you treat me like this? And you'll find that Jesus doesn't give you much of an answer, at least in the short run. He confounds those who know him best. Second, Jesus humbly serves those he loves. So if Jesus is that confusing and confounding and even disturbing, why should we follow him? That's a fair question. But look at verse 51, towards the end of the story, while most of this had already unfolded. Here's what we read. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. At that point in the story, you've got to stop and ask a question. Why? Jesus has just spent three days not just surviving, but thriving. Three days without dad and mom. And he's just fine. In fact, he's more than just fine. He's been wowing the preeminent Old Testament scholars of the day. He's going toe-to-toe with them. And he clearly has an awareness that he is the Son of God and has a God-ordained mission to accomplish in the world. So... Why wouldn't someone like that just launch out into adulthood? He seems ready to me. He's clearly more prepared for life than the average 12-year-old. But Jesus, the text says, willingly submits and obeys his parents. (laughs) If at at the age of 12 you have an awareness that you're the son of God, why would you do that? Right? Most 12-year-olds, even in their arrogance, don't have lofty notions of being the son or the daughter of God, as Jesus is. Do you see the humility of Jesus in this? This is speculation, but I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus at 12 years of age had a pretty good understanding of what his future would look like, that it would include rejection and death, but that all of that was part of a program that had to unfold. Keep in mind, he told his parents, it was necessary for me to be here. How many other things could he foresee in his future of which he would say, it is necessary, it is necessary, it is necessary, it is necessary, it is necessary. Why? Because that's part of God's salvation program. That's why he willingly submits to his parents. Because this is the way God wants the story to unfold. In other words, Jesus has a role to play. He has an assignment to fulfill. And part of that assignment is humble submission. Part of his assignment, part of his role is willingly submitting to God's plan for his life, which includes death. 
And the precursor to all of that is willingly submitting to and obeying his parents. And this is why, by the way, you should follow him even though he confounds you. Because he's totally committed to loving and serving those he confuses and confounds. He's totally committed to loving and serving those whom he confuses and confounds. This is one of the, this is one of the, 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 the muddy waters of suffering in the cross of Christ. There are numerous reasons we may suffer. Numerous reasons we may suffer. But one of the reasons can't be Jesus doesn't love you. That can't be it. Because when you look to the cross, you have more than ample evidence that he loves you with a love that's unmatched. He may confound you, but when you stare at the cross long enough, you realize this confounding Savior is a loving Savior. Barbara Boyd taught at a Bible camp in Colorado for uh, some years ago, and at one particular teaching time, she used this illustration. She said, if the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 93 million miles, by the way, if you could somehow fly a commercial jet, like Southwest or Delta, if you could somehow fly there, it'd take you 19 years to get there. So if the distance between the earth and the sun, 93 million miles, was reduced to the thickness of a sheet of paper, okay, as thin as a piece of paper, if you could reduce that distance, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And the diameter of the Milky Way galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. It'd take you 99 billion, 800 million years to fly southwest from one end of the Milky Way galaxy to the other. And that's just the Milky Way galaxy. Scientists estimate there are 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. I can't get my head around that one. And the Bible tells us, Barbara went on to say, the Bible tells us that this 12-year-old Jesus holds the universe together by the word of his power. She said, by his pinky finger. And yet, he willingly, humbly, obeys the human beings he created and willingly and humbly dies the death we should have died. He may be confounding, he may be confusing, he may be disturbing but he humbly serves those he loves. Last, Jesus is to be trusted and treasured. Jesus has confused, he has confounded Mary, and when Mary confronts Jesus, asking him why he had treated them like this, Jesus gently rebukes her. So question, at this point, if you're Mary, how do you respond to that? Your 12-year-old kind of copped an attitude. Or so you may think. But how do you respond to that? Look at what Mary does. Look at what the text says. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Treasured all these things in her heart. This is the same response she had to the shepherd's message after she had given birth to Jesus. And she's holding, by the way, two truths together. What's she treasuring? Treasuring all these things. She's holding two truths together, the, the text would indicate. Two truths together. What is she holding together? 
She's holding together Jesus' confusing nature with, with his willing obedience and submission to them in spite of who he is. Those are the two she's holding together. And she's treasuring these things. She is contemplating these things. She's trying to put her thoughts together. She wants to relish this. She wants to experience this. And by the way, what she's doing here is not a technique. It's an attitude. She's, she's doing, listen, she's doing all of this. She's doing all of this after having asked the question, Jesus, why are you treating me like this? How do we normally respond once we've uttered that question? I'm out of here. Why are you treating me like this? Forget it. If I can't come up with a solution to it, we're done here. If I can't come up with a reason for this, an answer to that question, then I'm out of here. No, Jesus is holding these two truths together and she's mulling it over. She's turning it over. And she's doing all of this, all of this, after having asked the question, why are you treating me like this? Now, putting these two truths together, by the way, is not like eating fun-sized Snicker bars. By the way, there's nothing fun about that size of a Snicker bar. <laughs> a bite or two, a few chews, and it's been devoured. That's it. That's all there is. Now, pondering the confounding nature of Jesus, pondering the humble nature of Jesus is more like eating hard candy. It's not meant to be chewed a few times and then devoured. You need to suck on it. You need to roll it around in your mouth. You need to work it over. If you try to eat hard candy the way you do a Snickers bar, you actually miss out on the full enjoyment of it. So Mary is showing us how to trust and treasure Jesus. She's showing us how to do that. She's taking two truths that seem to conflict with one another and she's rolling it around. She's rolling it around. All of it after having asked the question, why are you treating me like this? So what's the evidence you're actually trusting and treasuring Jesus? What's the evidence that you're actually trusting and treasuring Jesus after having asked him the question, why are you treating me like this? What's the evidence of that? Well, have you ever had a friend tell you about a new restaurant in town that you absolutely need to try out? And maybe the first time you, uh, they told you about it, uh, you listened as they raved about it and you thought, okay, that's nice, you know, I'll, I'll have to get there sometime. You know, a month later, your friend, friend comes back to you and says, hey, did you try out that restaurant that I told you about? And you say, no, no, I haven't been able to get there. You know, and they urge you one more time, you have to go. You gotta go try this restaurant. Trust me, you won't be disappointed. So you finally get there after your friend has been hounding you for weeks. You order the food, you taste the food, and you love it. In fact, you regret taking so long and listening to your friend's recommendation. Because you didn't get after it, you've lived an additional six weeks without this restaurant in your life. But now that you've tried it and you love it, what happens? What happens? You go out of your way to eat there. You go out of your way to eat there. How do you know if you're really trusting and treasuring Jesus? How do you know if you're really trusting and treasuring Jesus? After you've asked the question, why are you treating me like this? You go out of your way to get more of them. You go out of your way to get more of them. You go out of your way to serve them. You go out of your way to please them. You schedule him around other things. You don't schedule him around other things. You put him in your schedule first. 
You schedule other things around him. You put him in your budget first. You schedule your budget around him. That's the evidence you're trusting and treasuring Jesus after having asked the question, why are you treating me like this? You go out of your way to get more of them. So while Jesus may leave you dazed and confused from time to time with the things he says and does, I hope you see he's worth following. He's gone to extraordinary lengths of obedience and submission to save you and make you part of his family. He's worth trusting. He's worth treasuring. Even after, even after he's left you dazed and confused. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't want to succumb to dethroning you by forcing you or expecting you to act in ways that satisfy our ideas of the way things ought to be or how things ought to be done. Jesus, you are God, and as such, you're worthy of our worship. As such, your will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond our largest notion of what you're up to. And while this may leave us dazed and confused at times, we thank you for loving us, for serving us with complete and utter humility, for fulfilling an assignment the Father gave you that included obedience and submission even to death on a cross for us. So Jesus, I pray that you'd help us to stare at you even when we're wondering why. Help us to linger with you so we may trust and treasure you to the fullest extent. We want to do that now even as we close this service. We want to stare at you. We want to linger with you. I pray for those here today who are asking the question, why are you treating me like this, God? I pray they would trust and treasure you in this moment. We ask this in your name. Amen.